And go ahead and make your way once again to the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you are using the Bible in the rack in front of you, that's on page 660. Though it might be hard to see at first, uh, the overarching subject of this chapter is relationships. What is a relationship? Asks uh, Paul Tripp and Tim Lane in their excellent book with the ominous title, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making, which I I highly recommend the book. Uh, What is a relationship, they ask? The intersection of the stories of two people. The problem is that an awful lot of carnage takes place at that intersection. As the preacher continues his study of life under the sun... He bears witness to that carnage, that relational carnage, uh, as he looks at social interaction and relationships in the realm that we live in day in and day out, life on this fallen earth. Now, the preacher who is most likely uh, the ancient King Solomon, the son of uh, King David, he's been on a quest to find lasting gain and significance in this realm Uh, that we live in, in what we can see and experience as we go about life day to day under the sun. So far, he's looked at human activity and achievement. He's looked at human wisdom. Can we find lasting gain there? We saw him take a look at time and eternity. And this morning, uh, now he comes to relationships. And so far in his search, he's come up pretty empty-handed. Apart from What God has done and the gifts that God gives, we've seen little glimpses, little sunlight breaking through the clouds at times. But apart from that, everything he has uh, explored and experienced is what he calls vapor, vanity, uh, smoke. It's a breath that disappears before you can grab it or understand it. And so how will relationships fare? He turns his attention to human interaction. Everybody longs for relationships. We all want to know and to be known by somebody. We all want to love and be loved by someone. It's one of the most basic elements of being human. Surely we'll find some lasting gain there. Uh, To be human is to be made in God's image. In the image, and that makes us a relational being. Uh, For God is Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons who enjoy a perfect, eternal communion with one another in knowledge, glory, and love. So, if we're human and we bear his image, we're relational beings. Relationships are natural to humanity. Even the new humanism, quote-unquote, of New York Times columnist David Brooks that he writes about, even that recognizes we are not rational animals, we are not laboring animals, we are social animals animals. We emerge out of relationships to live uh, and live to bond with each other and to connect to larger ideas. So relationships are part of who we are. So Solomon takes a look to see, is there any lasting gain to be found there? Can the intersection of our lives give us the abiding joy and significance that we so desperately look for? But as he looks into the study, What he finds is a mosaic of relational dysfunction. 
Now, the way you make a mosaic, if you've ever seen or, or done one of those things, you take pieces of broken tile, or if you think of a stained glass window, pieces of broken glass, and you arrange them to make a picture. Well, this chapter divides into four sections, and it gives us four different portraits, four different pictures of how disappointing our relationships can be. So you think of it like four stained glass windows, you know, all side by side. Each portrait here uses the fragments of broken human relationships to tell a story and to paint a picture in living color that reminds us of the instability of our human relationships. Again, smoke, vapor, vanity. What do you do when someone takes advantage of you and there's no one else that seems to care? How do you respond when the time that you spend with your close friend secretly fuels your envy and covetousness for their situation, their house, their their kids? I wish mine behaved that way. Their clothes, their place in life. How do you handle it when someone prioritizes their career over the commitment that they made to you and you are a widow to their career? How do you respond when you realize you're the one that's been doing that, but now it seems like it might be too late? What happens when the praise you received as you began your new leadership role quickly and surprisingly devolves into bitter criticism and spite. I mean, with such fragile relationships in this world, whom can you trust? That's our question. That's the question of our passage this morning. And though the preacher is not going to come right out and answer it, uh, he will take us by the shoulders and point us in the right direction. Such that if we follow the trail where this chapter points us, we'll see that despite the instability of human relationships, we were in fact made for community. And that community comes from being united with the triune God and with one another through faith in Christ. So let's pray and seek God's guidance this morning. Lord, we do long to hear your voice. God, we confess this book touches some very tender subjects in our heart. And it's not always been a comfortable thing to look at. So Jesus, we pray that your grace would be sweet this morning. As some of what we look at might raise some very um, hard realities in our life and our experience. We pray that your presence would be especially known. We pray that you would remind us of your mercy and that you are at work to make all things new, Lord. Be with us this morning as we look into your word and change our hearts in the process. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to take us on a tour of those four stained glass windows this morning. Each section of this passage, verses 1 through 3, 4 through 6, 7 through 12, and then 13 through 16, and help us take in the unsettling reality of how our relationships in life are prone to disappointment. And now, if you're just joining us for the series through Ecclesiastes, no doubt this sounds like a rather morbid course to plan for 
a sermon. Uh, it's a bit of a downer. Not exactly positive and encouraging. Um, and you know, it's, it's not. Uh, not at first. But it's real. It's honest. And that's what Solomon is forcing us to be as we look at this book and as we look out onto the world, to be honest with the things that are wrong in this world and therefore to look to God for hope. Um, so that's, again, not to say that there isn't hope as we look at some of these things. There is. But we won't really see it and cling to it unless we're first disenchanted with all of the empty hopes and fleeting dreams that we are prone to trust in. And so Solomon forces us to get honest. And we're going to be honest this morning. And the tour begins in verses 1 through 3, which pick up the theme of injustice that we saw a couple weeks ago at the end of chapter 3 and show us both the ugliness of oppression and the frustration of when there's no companion for those who are being oppressed. So verse 3. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Oppression exploitation, forcibly taking advantage of others, coercing or even injuring someone in order to get what you want out of them, using your clout, your money, your power in order to get away with it. There are few uglier traits of fallen humanity than oppression. When greed meets opportunity, in the heart of a sinner, and it's mixed with power, the result is a storm of oppression. And it's ugly. Governments forcibly exploit their people, while their people forcibly exploit, exploit the weaker, uh, the defenseless. We see it in racism. We see it in human trafficking. We see it in violence. One culture marginalizes another culture. One nation builds its empire on the backs of other weaker nations. This is the history of humanity. And what enables the oppressors to get away with it is that they have power on their side. Which actually tells us something about the human condition. The difference between the oppressed and the oppressors isn't always moral quality. Sometimes it's simply power. And were that power to shift, the roles would simply flip. Because that's how dark our human hearts are. Oppression is in our blood. All of our blood. When we gather and assemble the broken shards of, human, of the human experience, this is the picture that we find. But notice what shocks Solomon even more than the reality of oppression. The fact that there is no one there to comfort the oppressed. Note the repetition. You know, Behold the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power. And there was no one to comfort them. 
Oppression is terrible. Being taken advantage of and, and exploited is absolutely terrible. But to face that alone with no one to comfort you, no one to stand alongside you, to pick up, pick you up and defend you, well, according to Solomon, you're better off dead. Now, verses 2 through 3 are probably some of the most shocking verses in this book. I mean, is it even okay to say things like that in the Bible? That in the light of evil and rampant oppression in the world, that the dead who've never seen it are better off than the living? And that those who aren't even born yet are better than both? Is that okay? I mean, you can see why why interpreters both ancient and modern have questioned the preacher's orthodoxy at times. This doesn't seem to line up with what we know about the rest of the Bible. But if you stop and think about it, this is not too far off from some of the things that come out of our own mouths sometimes. How many of us have thought or uttered, I'm not sure I want to bring any more kids into this messed up world. Have we ever thought that? How how could I do that to my children, bring them into a world that's such a mess? That's the exact same sentiment he's expressing here. Better then the living are those who will never be and have to face this. Solomon's just being honest here. And it's hard to think of relationships providing lasting gain when the human heart is so dark that we're both vulnerable to oppression and yet at the same time vulnerable to becoming oppressors ourselves and taking advantage of others. So the first window is uncompelling. Let's look at the second, verses 4 through 6. And the ugly side of competition and innovation, verse 4. Then I saw that all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Now, we've all heard the phrase, keeping up with the Joneses, um, that temptation to compete with your neighbor for the best lawn or, or for the, the nicest home. You know, they're, they're unpacking the 10-foot trampoline in the backyard, and you're on your way to Toys R Us to buy the 12-foot. You know, um, there's nothing new about this temptation. Solomon talks about it millennia ago. But don't miss his commentary on it. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. It's vapor. If you've ever tried to chase down and wrap your arms around wind, that process and exercise is about as unrewarding as trying to keep up with your neighbor. It leaves us unsatisfied because just when you assemble for four, five, six hours that 12-foot trampoline, the neighbor next door unwraps the 18-foot one. It just around and around goes the rat race. But beyond being futile, it's also damaging to ourselves and to others because instead of loving your neighbor in relationship, you're competing with him for status. 
instead of laying down our lives in love and service for one another, we protect ourselves and our stuff, eager to build our own personal Eden where life works just the way we want it to, where we become, as we say, the envy of all our neighbors and friends. Essayist Wendell Berry reflects, It seems that we've been reduced almost to a state of absolute economics in which people and all other creatures and things may be considered purely as economic units or integers of production in which a human being may be dealt with merely as a covetous machine. Think about that. A covetous machine. That's what envy does to us. It's dehumanizing. It is a hammer against the glass of human relationships. Now, there are only two relationships where envy or jealousy are ever used positively in Scripture. The relationship between God and his people and between husband and wife. Now, God's people belong to him. It is good and right for him to be jealous of their devotion and affection. The husband and wife belong to each other. Our stomachs ought to turn when we see someone else encroaching on that exclusive relationship. But in every other relationship, envy shatters community and spoils work in pursuit of our self-centered gain. Once again, human relationships, because of envy, are found wanting. But how do we approach our work if envy is such a threat? That's another question that Solomon raises, and it's worth a comment or two. Uh, One author identifies three possible responses to the problem of envy uh, in this passage, all dealing with the posture of our hands. Hands comes up three times here. The hands that we use for our work. First, there are folded hands, like this. It's a picture of laziness. Now, one might be tempted to conclude that if my work is fueled by envy and it's not going to supply any lasting gain, then I'm just going to sit back and watch everybody else from a safe distance and maybe blog about it or something. But as one commentator describes, as toil can be all-consuming, so idleness is self-cannibalizing. Laziness is self-destructive. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh because there's nothing else in the cupboard. That's the picture. Now, the second posture is two hands cupped together like kids at the neighbor's door on Halloween night. We want more, as much as we can get. There's more room in those hands. That's the posture of greed and envy. But as the preacher notes in verse 6, Better is a single handful of quietness than two hands full of striving, of toil and striving after wind. Now, we've seen in this book already that work is a good thing. It is a gift from God and in His grace can be enjoyed and should be enjoyed. That's the picture to be enjoyed, particularly when we're satisfied in Him. When we're satisfied in God. That's the picture of the quietness. The single handful of quietness. 
We've seen that a couple of times in this book. The two hands full of strife. What's going to get you nowhere? That's the rat race. Now, that doesn't mean, this problem of envy doesn't mean things like innovation, hard work, and so on are necessarily bad. They're not necessarily bad. That's not the problem in this passage. The problem is envy and materialism that substitutes self and stuff and status for God and neighbor. That's the problem. Switching God and neighbor and in their place, putting status and stuff. So, oppression, envy. Let's look at our third window, verses 7 through 12, and the danger of isolation. Verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now these verses are no doubt some of the most, the, the best known in this chapter and really in the whole book. We often hear in particular verses uh, 9 through 11 at weddings. Uh, and whereas they do apply to the marriage relationship, that's not specifically what this passage is talking about. Uh, these verses speak of the importance of companionship in general, whether that's friendship or family or marriage. Um, they also chastise the workaholic who sacrifices companionship for personal gain. And so that's where this, that's the picture this window is painting for us. <clears throat> so closely related to that last window here, we see a picture of someone whose broken life tells an extremely sad story. He's sitting all alone in his office, 2 a.m., working away, spending his life, building his wealth, but it's never enough, and he never stops to ask, Why? Who am I going to share it with? Where will it all go when I'm done? I mean, you think of even Ebenezer Scrooge from Dickens' A Christmas Carol. You know, the misery of a miser who chooses isolation for the sake of selfish gain. This, too, is relationship gone awry. It's vanity and it's fruitless. It's hard to understand. Why someone would do that, yet it's such a common pattern in this world. That's the first part of the window. The second part of the window tells a different story. Verses 9 through 12 uh, capture the sunlight in a particularly brilliant way to remind us that even though the relationships we experience are hard, that they consist in broken fragments and are often disappointing that we were actually made for relationship. Again, we are relational beings. 
We are made in the image of our relational triune God. When God said of Adam in Genesis 2.18, it's not good for the man to be alone, that statement had more to do with God's design for humanity than Adam's neediness. And Solomon illustrates the importance and value of companionship, how two are better than one, with the imagery of taking a journey. In verses 9 through 12, travel in the ancient Near East was a uh, it was fraught with peril. Uh, there were pits. People had maybe dug to catch animals or, or, or bandits had dug. There were pits you could fall in, things you could trip on the road. Uh, you know, there weren't hotels to stay in at night. There's some cold nights on that journey. Uh, certainly there were bandits and things like that. And well, We don't think about those things as much anymore when we take a journey because we have things like airplanes and cars and hotels and cell phones. But if you step back and realize it, you know, a lot of those same difficulties are, are, are still there. Um, and the difference, therefore, between taking a journey by yourself versus going with a companion is, is very clear to see in terms of the benefit, the value of companionship. You know, if one falls, the other one can pick him up. If, you know, it's cold outside, two can keep warm together on a cold night under the stars. Two can protect each other in the threat of attack. And if two are better than one, then three is all the stronger, as Solomon summarizes with a proverb that has its roots in ancient Sumer. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Like that picture. You know, you think of pulling a single string of thread that snaps easy. Rope is made of that same thread but it's just bound and wove together with lots and lots and lots of them. And it's so strong, you, you, know, you trust your body hanging off a cliff to it. That's the picture of companionship. We were made for relationship. Now, I'm not trying to guilt anyone for using this text in their wedding. Uh, it certainly does apply. But neither do I want us to... Uh, neither do I want to leave us with the impression that the companionship we're made for uh, that's being described here can't be experienced outside of marriage. Uh, I've sat through wedding sermons where well-meaning preachers have gone on about how one is the loneliest number and the humiliation and torture of solitary confinement all to speak of the glories of marriage. But as Christopher Yuan uh, pointed out, few weeks ago when he was with us, too often we treat singleness like a consolation prize for those who didn't get married. You know, think of a game show and you didn't end up winning any money on that wheel, here's your parting gift, a board game of the game show or something like that, your consolation prize. That's not how the Bible treats it. That's not at all how the Bible treats it. We rightly celebrate the beauty and joy of marriage, but we wrongly set it over against singleness. I'm reminded of the lines from uh, one of Cademan's call. Cademan calls uh, several songs about lost love. Maybe I have the gift that everyone speaks so highly of. Funny how nobody wants it. The gift of singleness, we call it. And we need to be very clear here that Marriage is beautiful, but marriage is only one expression of companionship. And it's not the primary expression in this passage. 
It's a sacred and intimate expression, but it's only one expression. There's also family and friendship in Scripture. And Scripture speaks very highly of both of those relationships. We need to celebrate those relationships as well. Children and singles were made for community just as married people were. The question is, how are healthy relationships possible in a fallen world when relationships so often disappoint? That's the question we have to ask. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But first we have to look at our last window uh, in verses 13 to 16. And our tendency toward prioritizing self over others. Verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with the youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all these people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after wind. We've seen oppression. We've seen envy. We've seen isolation. And now we see pride. This window tells a story that's familiar to all of us in one shape or another. Transition in leadership. That's what's happening Uh, And many attempts have been made to figure out, is is this telling a story of an actual historical figure? It kind of reminds us of Joseph and Genesis and things like that. But really, there's no historical figure where all of the details fit just right. So it's probably a simple parable. But underneath that relational dysfunction that's on display here in in this parable is pride. Pride. It starts with an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. This man saw no need for community or relationship in his prideful self-sufficiency. But along comes a wise youth, poor, even imprisoned at one point, but now he's going to take the king's place. All is well, right? The new guy's here. He's going to fix everything. But notice what happens in verse 16. There's no end to the people he leads. And yet those who come later will be just as disenchanted with him as they were with his his predecessor. The same pride that displaced his predecessor moves his followers to reject him when their self-centered pride and expectations go unmet. As one author notes, he's reached the pinnacle of human glory only to be stranded there. It's yet another of our human anticlimaxes and ultimately empty achievements. You know, how many times do we see that story played out today? You know, think of coaches. You know, the franchise fires the football coach for his lousy season and Everybody celebrates the arrival of his replacement and the era of domination that now lies ahead. But within a few years, that story replays itself. We see it in political offices. Uh, All but one of the last 12 presidents has left office with a much lower approval rating 
than when they went in. And don't think that pastors and churches are immune from this either. We're not. We're not. Like the little residue of soap on a dish that causes it to slip from your hand and shatter on the floor. So a little pride among a leader and those led destroys a whole community. None of us are immune. So where does all of this leave us? You know, if relationships are so precarious and unsatisfying, uh, you know, so often a reminder of the fallen world we live in, where do we go from here? I mean, staring too long at, at a mosaic like this can cause one to, to become dizzy and confused. Are we simply left to throw up our hands and give up on people? Do we put up our guard, put our head down, and walk through life, keeping an eye on the nearest exit, just in case things turn south? Do we resolve to take the upper hand? Better to take advantage of others than to be taken advantage of by someone else. Is all of this relational mess even worth it? As Lane and Tripp remind us, if you wonder why bother, the answer is because God did. God bothered with our relational mess. Now, again, unlike some of his earlier investigations, Solomon doesn't sort this one out for us here, not in this passage. He doesn't resolve the tension. But if we think about the implications that we see here of how disappointing our relationships can be, and if we follow the contours of this book and where it's pointing us and lifting our eyes to look above the sun where God dwells, we see a God who is, is himself the perfection of relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and who sent his son Jesus to deal with our relational dysfunction, the sin and pride and rebellion that not only fractures our relationships here on earth, but that severs us from God in heaven. Jesus came to deal with that relational dysfunction and to reunite us with God and with one another. We cannot move toward community with one another until we've been drawn into community with God. Understanding God as Trinity is crucial to understanding relational wholeness in this world. I'm excited that in a few weeks we're going to take a break from Ecclesiastes while Pastor Bruce takes us through a series on the Trinity and in the difference that having a triune God makes for our relationships and our mission as a church. But the only way to come into, to come into communion with God is through Jesus Christ, who stepped into the brokenness of our relationships to bring forgiveness, to bring repentance, and to bring wholeness through the cross and resurrection to everyone who will believe. If you think about our passage and all of the problems we've seen, Jesus was the oppressed who had no one to comfort him. Think about the stories of his life in the Gospels. The tears of the oppressed and there's no one Comfort him. Jesus 
was ridiculed and marginalized out of his neighbor's envy. He was abandoned on his journey to the cross. He was welcomed into Jerusalem as a king with shouts of, Hosanna, save us, only to be murdered one week later. Talk about fickleness. And he did all of it to bring his father glory by rescuing us. Lane and Tripp, in the book I mentioned earlier, describe it like this. The shattered relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the cross provides the basis for our reconciliation. No other relationship suffered more than what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit endured when Jesus hung on the cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was willing to be the rejected son so that our families would know reconciliation. Jesus was willing to become the forsaken friend so that we could have loving friendships. Jesus was willing to be the rejected Lord so that we could live in loving submission to one another. Jesus was willing to be the forsaken brother so that we could have godly relationships Jesus was willing to be the crucified king so that our communities would experience peace. The relational wholeness that we long for, that we were made for, is only available in Christ. And the same gospel message that rescues us from our sin and brokenness also changes us to love one another the way that Jesus loved us. Now, sadly, that's not always the experience in the church. You know, relational wholeness is rarely the first word that comes to our mind when we think of Christians, whether we are in the church or outside looking in. Now, I don't know where you are today on that, on that spectrum, but I do know this. That Jesus is not done with his people. He's not done. We're still sinners. We are still hypocrites. We still hurt each other and we're still going to be hurt by others. But we are not without hope. And that's beautiful. Every painful thing we experience in relationships is meant to remind us of our need for God. And every good thing we experience is meant to be a metaphor of what we can only find in God. And when we surrender our lives to Christ and come into relationship with the triune God by faith, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in our hearts to change our lives. To help us comfort the oppressed. To help us lay our lives down for our neighbors instead of envy them. To help us walk alongside one another in love. 
and to submit humbly to one another in reverence for Christ. We were made for community. We were made for community. And true community comes from being united with the triune God and with one another through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, as we think about what we've seen in this book this morning, our hearts are a flurry of different emotions. We see the faces of those who've betrayed us in our heart respond with frustration and anger. We see the faces of those who've been betrayed by us and our heart responds with guilt and shame. We see blank faces that we can't even remember anymore because we have cut them off and out of our lives. Lord, help us see your face. Help us see the beautiful face of Christ who took our pain, who took our bitterness, who took our relational dysfunction, all our sin, all our rebellion on himself and put this people back together again, Lord. Put our hearts back together. Put our relationships back together. Strengthen us by your spirit that we might walk as you designed us to walk in community with you and with each other in such a way that your name, your glory, your love, your beauty are constantly on